You are listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud, conversations about trauma and healing from two women who are doing the work. Hey everyone, it's Candace and Cher with Processing Trauma Out Loud. Cher, we have been in a little bit of a series here talking about why we love story work and how story work has really been significant and transforming our stories and how we show up in the world, especially with ourselves. And what we've also seen with our clients, we just did an episode about just how thankful we are when our clients began to show up and tell us that the changes that they're seeing in their own lives. And today we decided to take a topic that probably isn't talked about a whole lot in the in a public way. I believe these conversations happen in counseling sessions, coaching sessions, and, you know, in a, in a more private setting. And, and there's a reason for that. And so even as you and I discuss the topic of complicity, when you have experienced childhood sexual abuse, we, we are very aware that this could be, this could be really hard to listen to really just want to invite you that if it feels too much to not listen, what is your gut saying right now? Or or maybe have your therapist or your coach listen to it and then have this discussion with you if there's something about it that you you do want to engage. So before we dive in, can you just really break it down a little bit of what, what does it mean to be complicit or to feel complicit when you have had childhood sexual abuse? in your history. I read also where one person was relating the story of when their therapist said, we need to come to the point where we can talk about your role in your sexual abuse. And the person just, you know, really, it it was overwhelming and didn't understand immediately that what the therapist was getting at was that you had no role. Complicity is the feeling that we did play a role that we had some aspect of responsibility for why we were abused. And and sometimes we're told this by our abuser, that we want it, that we like it, that we, you know, that we love. And I want to just also come back and say, sometimes I just really do want to call it sexual assault. Even in childhood, like we we soften it with this word abuse, but really it is sexual assault. Mm -hmm. And when a child is sexually assaulted, I can guarantee you 1 million percent that child did not want anything sexual. It is not developmentally possible for a child to seek pleasure in this way. Does a child want closeness? Yes. Does a child want attention? Yes. Does a child want touch and tenderness and 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 goodness and recognition and affirmation and you know all the things that often accompany being sexually violated? Yes, we are wired for good care, but in a context that is pure, where the child's innocence is maintained and esteemed and valued, not sought after and consumed. Sometimes we're made to feel complicit or responsible by our abuser. Sometimes we carry that on ourselves. And sometimes that is because the brain and the body will actually cause us to feel some sense of empowerment or control that enables us to actually survive. 
Yeah, I was going to say to to give us some level of safety that we have some level of, you know, what can we do to stay safe? Well, to to be complicit might be the only way. And this is not a choice. Yeah. And this is not something we consciously choose. This is something that our brain does to help us. And I'm going to really emphasize the word survive, stay alive. That's it. In the conversation before the conversation, we tapped into a little bit of your story. And I asked you, can we talk a little bit about that today? Mm -hmm. Just being aware that you really have had so much care. And there's still some complexity anytime you talk about your own childhood sexual abuse. Mm -hmm. As we were talking about, you, you had shared with me something that your therapist had said to you. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was just so profound. I mean, honestly, heartbreaking. And I've heard you share this a few times. And yeah, I get I get pretty choked up in what you said about that little girl who was sexually abused. Yeah. And this was many years ago. This was my first kind of entry into doing therapy. And it was a few years after my memories that had very much been repressed and held in my subconscious, which I was not really consciously aware of, though I had, I had had dreams and flashbacks and definitely questions. But, but when I started therapy, she not, not when I started, but after I had been going for a while, and we had talked quite a bit about my little girl, even way back then, didn't understand IFS and, 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 and all of that the way that I do today. But we talked a lot about my little girl. One day, my therapist asked me, how I felt about her. And I did always speak about her in the third person, like her and she, and with with a lot of hatred, because when she asked me, how do I feel toward my little girl, toward that little girl, I said, I hate her. And she asked me, why did I feel that hatred toward her. And and I could just say without a second of hesitation, she was so stupid. And then the question came, you know, why do you feel she was so stupid? And I could rattle off a lot of things like she stayed. She didn't get out of there. She liked being with her dad. She she wanted closeness with him. She, you know, all all these things that that I could put words to like all of the ways that I carried self-blame and responsibility for the ongoing sexual violation and assault that I experienced in childhood. And I carried a lot of responsibility for it. Yeah, you carried a lot until you had other people begin to move close to her and ask you questions. Mm -hmm. And a few episodes ago, we talked about shifts. There was a shift that started happening for you to see her with new eyes. Yeah. And it's interesting. You and I talked about this. Why didn't more of those shifts happen 30 years ago? When When I was having this conversation with my therapist 30 years ago, She was good. I mean, she was a good therapist. She gave me a lot of just beautiful, exquisite care. And I can't, I don't know why the breakthrough did not happen. But I know that when I started story work and in the context of telling 
the stories and really highlighting the particularities where I could get very close, not only to the story, but to the little girl in the story and where I allowed then other eyes to see her and all of those feelings of complicity and carrying responsibility. And then when right in the middle of, 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 of all of those particularities, a voice would come that would say, tell me how that little girl is feeling. And then the movement to come close, close enough where eventually I could, again, bring forth some of these truths that my little girl held very securely that Mm -hmm. she was responsible. Mm -hmm. And then to have other adult women bring in the perspective that was very different from the perspective that I still held to be true. And that was that, in fact, I, as a six-year-old or or eight-year-old, was not responsible for the horrible things that happened to me. Absolutely not. When we start to look at our childhood harm or our childhood specifically, what we're talking about is sexual abuse. There's a sense, so, so we have the memory and maybe we even have some pretty clear, like we can see clearly even the scene. And we are processing that from our 40-year-old brain, 50-year-old brain. And when we're working with a trauma-informed, and I'll just say story work coach, who has gone into their own stories and received a lot of healing and transformation, there is this knowing that, that we do that. We have a hard time getting close to that six-year-old and, and reimagining what it would have been like for a six-year-old, not a six-year-old that's now processing as a 40, 50-year-old adult. Right. And so part of this work is getting close to a six-year-old. Yeah. I know for me, I had a really hard time doing that for a while. Yeah. Because I, I wanted, I wanted to put my adult brain into that six-year-old brain right? until for me, what was helpful is to picture being my own little girl. Yeah. That, that helped me. Yes. Picturing her, but then that actually helped lead me to picturing me. You're talking about imagining something like this happening to your daughter. Yes. How would you feel? How would you respond? How would how would you view her as being complicit to her harm? Absolutely. Yeah. And and so I I do think that can help someone sometimes. Not everybody needs that. Yeah. Not everybody has a daughter that they can imagine that with, but I did. Yeah. You know, the the work of a trained therapist and coach is to gently lead and guide guide us back to that little girl. Yeah. And and I think part of that too, Candace, and I love how you are making the distinction between the parts of the brain. If we approach this through our prefrontal cortex, mm-hmm. we cannot get close to the things that lie deeper in our limbic brain. And the in the way that we access our limbic brain, and again, that's where these memories are stored and where the perceptions of these memories are stored, most effective way to gain entrance to that part of our brain is by becoming aware of the sensations 
that we are feeling in our body as we tell the stories. And this is, this is, and we've talked about this before, that sometimes this has been, for me, it was so frustrating because people would ask, what are you feeling in your body? You know, and I would be like, I know there's a right answer here, but I am not feeling anything. It took me a long time before I started to become aware that, ooh, when I'm telling this story, I am very dysregulated and my eyes get big and my breathing gets faster and I'm starting to feel anxious. But it took a long time because I was so accustomed to being able to dissociate that I could go into hypoarousal and I could talk about it all day long as though it had no impact on me whatsoever. I've been with you. Yeah. Many times where that's happening in you. So we can see it, okay? And you can't in that moment. And it is because your limbic brain, right? You're beginning to feel the sensations, the perceptions of what's happening is coming. Yeah. And what a hard, but what a beautiful thing that you've trusted other people to say, hey, can we slow down a minute and just be with this, be with this, right? Like it's being, so honestly, it's being with that little girl. Yeah. Yeah. And we, we do this jokingly sometimes where we'll just say something along the lines of, well, I know that's what your prefrontal cortex is saying, but can we slow down? Yeah. And we give each other permission to do that because we trust that we we trust the eyes and the ears of those who are holding us in our group. And it it has become a beautiful thing where we we, we do trust that even when I'm not seeing something, that the things that you are seeing matter, and we and and that there's not a hurry. Like we do slow down and give each other time to process. And when we're talking about this topic of complicity. There is no way that we can move toward this until we are in a context where we feel safe. Mm-hmm. And, and that might, I mean, for some people that can happen more quickly. For other people, that is going to take a long time of building trust and allowing other eyes to enter into our story in ways that we can tolerate and ways that we can welcome that then prepares the way for us to come to this place where we can even say, and I, I remember the first time that somebody, when I talked about having places of honor because I was the one who was chosen, that I recognized that I had places of honor, that mm-hmm. sometimes I was even told, you be the one to ask for this special thing, because if you ask, we will get to do it. And I remember the day that my therapist at the time asked me, you know, what does it feel like to know you have that kind of power? And, oh, uh, I mean, that was like, I just got furious, in, instantly furious and just could not abide the, 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 the possibility that I held power. But the truth is I did. I had I felt some aspect of power and control, again, that enabled me to survive in a situation that was utterly horrible. I mean, how, how could you not? 
And it's not just in childhood sexual sexual abuse. It can it can be in multiple ways where that sense of power is is being given to us in one sense that in, enables us to feel that we can survive. And and literally for some children, it, we don't minimize any amount of abuse. But when you you've had repeated sexual harm and violence in your story multiple times, it is literal survival. And oh, yeah, I'm just I'm feeling some emotion around that. And yeah. uh, and I just I want to mention too that it it also shows up in adults who are assaulted in a single traumatic instance. And sometimes we see this. We're more aware of this, of the the victim who takes this self-blame and says, I should have known better. I shouldn't have been there. I should have done this. I shouldn't have done that. It's all my fault, right? And then society often will put that on the victim too. And so again- why we had the Me Too movement. uh, Exactly. To bring an awakening. Yeah. Yeah, So, And I will just say, I think there are some wonderful male voices that- understand this and have been advocates for women, but I want to say most of them are not. And this, this is the anger. How dare you tell me what you think happened or should have happened in a moment when I was being abused. Yeah. F you. Yeah. And, and it's sad, right? Cause we know that we want to make our anger transformative for society. But I'm telling you, sometimes we have to get really mad about something. Yes. And there hasn't been enough, even still, even with the Me Too, even with these huge religious organizations that have, it's been now been exposed that that there has been a rampant sexual mm-hmm. assault against children, uh, in particular, we're talking about today, but there still is not enough anger and consequences and coming to terms with some some very big needs that are still necessary in in our society today. Well, thank you for being willing to to share more of your story. You you have been very vulnerable and transparent with our listeners over the last almost year and a half and and yet this is a topic that you've had on your heart for a while. It, it you've done a lot of work around it yourself. I think I want to just say that what I hope, and I want to hear what you hope too for our listeners today. Yeah. I'm I'm hoping that our willingness to bring this theme of complicity in a public way, whether 10 people listen or 10,000 people listen, I hope that it could help at least one person. Or if you know someone has beaten themselves up, or maybe living in a pile of shame yeah. over thinking that in some little way yeah. they are to blame for their sexual abuse. Please give them this episode. Yes, I agree with your hope. And I and, and I will say um, one thing that I feel very hopeful for is that this might help normalize that feeling complicit feels normal that people who have been sexually abused and assaulted and violated, that it is, I don't want to use the word normal, but like our brain will lead us down the path of feeling complicit in order to survive. And if we can embrace that that is 
the way of biology, maybe we can move past the shame that keeps us silent and locked behind the walls that will not, that have not yet allowed us to share our stories with trauma-informed coaches and therapists who can help us heal. That would be my my biggest hope. Well, I 100% agree with your hope as well, friend. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, it was good to be with you today around this hard topic, but a, a good one. Yeah. Thanks, Candice, for being willing to go to the hard places too. Always with you. That's right. <laughs> Love yeah. you, friend. Love you too. Thank you for listening to Processing Trauma Out Loud. Make sure to check out the show notes for links to suggested resources and social media. Like, subscribe, and follow to keep up with our weekly content. And if you don't mind, take a moment to rate and review us. Your feedback is extremely valuable and contributes to the success of this podcast. One last thing. If you have found this podcast helpful in any way, or if you have questions on how to take the next steps on your healing journey, please reach out to us via email at CandiceShare at gmail.com. That's K-A-N-D-A-C-E-S-H-E-R at gmail.com. Our sound engineer is Jeremiah Jones of Auditory LLC. We welcome you to join us for more conversations soon. Take care.